Well, one of the most well-known works on Christian theology and the Christian life is John Calvin's Institutes of the Christian Religion. Some of you may be familiar with this or have read it or uh, have it on your shelf and it looks good, but have not uh, cracked into it at this point. But I want you to listen how Calvin starts one of the most classic works that we have on the Christian life. So this is volume one, book one, chapter one, sentence one of Calvin's Institutes. He says, the whole sum of our wisdom, wisdom that is, which deserves to be called true and assured wisdom, broadly consists of two parts, the knowledge of God and the knowledge of ourselves. So Calvin, when he is saying this is what true religion consists of, this is what true wisdom consists of, indeed wisdom that is rightly called true wisdom, it consists of two parts, the knowledge of God and the knowledge of ourselves. That's how he begins. Well, that was in the 1500s. More recently, a professor at Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary, Richard Loveless, who just went to be with the Lord on Friday, just a couple days ago, at the age of 89, longtime professor at Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary, wrote another more modern classic book called The Dynamics of Spiritual Life. Uh, Richard Lovelace's expertise is in church history and specifically in revivals and renewal, both renewal and revival, corporately speaking, how we think of it, but also renewal and revival in our own lives. That's kind of his world that he studies and teaches on. And Richard Lovelace in this book, uh, the, the Dynamics of Spiritual Life, a, a book, by the way, Tim Keller uh, says it's one of his favorite books. He says, if any church planter comes to him and says, what book should I read? He hands them Dr. Richard Lovelace's The Dynamics of Spiritual Life. David Pallison says that this book, The Dynamics of Spiritual Life, helped to form much of his counseling ministry. Ray Ortland a uh, well-known pastor in Nashville says that Richard Lovelace's dynamics of spiritual life is never far from his thoughts and has shaped the way he understands the gospel and the Christian life. So this book is another classic. And listen to how Richard Lovelace says that what, what, what the two things are that need to be in our place for renewal to gain traction in our lives. He writes this, we need to consider two factors affecting the spiritual life, which are so closely linked together that they are two sides of a coin, an accurate apprehension of our own need and an accurate apprehension of the character of God. You see what these two theologians are saying and what many theologians in between have said and how they're advising us? There are two things that comprise true wisdom. There are two things needed in your life for spiritual renewal and revival to gain traction and to have a foothold. Those two things are an accurate, healthy, big, robust understanding of God and who he is and his character and an accurate, healthy, big, robust understanding of your own neediness and your own sin. Those are the two things that we need. Therefore, church, any opportunity that we have to meditate on those two topics, 
to have a fresh look at those realities of God and humanity should not be taken lightly. It all sounds so basic, an understanding of who God is and an understanding of who we are, but we can't afford to ignore the massive implications and import of a right understanding of these two areas in our Christian lives. Well, our, our text this morning is a meditation on those two truths, contrasting the gloriousness of God and His character and the neediness and sinfulness of humanity. Turn with me to Psalm chapter 36. Psalm chapter 36. Our big idea for this text as we walk through it, I think, is this. An accurate view of sin and steadfast love fuels spiritual health. It's kind of a summary statement. An accurate view of sin and steadfast love, that that's us and God. An accurate view of sin and steadfast love fuels spiritual health. We're going to look at these two sides of the same coin that Richard Lovelace talked about. By way of an outline, if you're taking notes, if this would be helpful for you, or, uh, the text kind of splits itself up this way, I think you'll see in the text. But in the first four verses, we'll look at first the way of the wicked, or the way of wickedness, verses 1 through 4. And then secondly, the love of the Lord, verses 5 through 9. So the way of, the way of wickedness, verses 1 through 4. The love of the Lord, verses 5 through 9. And then as we conclude, we'll look at, at the final three verses and, and kind of a prayer that David off, uh, offers considering both of those topics. So the way of wickedness, the love of the Lord. Look with me at Psalm 36. Transgression speaks to the wicked deep in his heart. There is no fear of God before his eyes. For he flatters himself in his own eyes that his iniquity cannot be found out and hated. The words of his mouth are trouble and deceit. He has ceased to act wisely and do good. He plots trouble while on his bed. He sets himself in a way that is not good. He does not reject evil. Your steadfast love, O Lord, extends to the heavens, your faithfulness to the clouds. Your righteousness is like the mountains of God. Your judgments are like the great deep. Man and beast you save, O Lord. How precious is your steadfast love, O God. The children of mankind take refuge in the shadow of your wings. They feast on the abundance of your house, and you give them drink from the river of your delights. For with you is the fountain of life. In your light do we see light. O oh, continue your steadfast love to those who know you and your righteousness to the upright of heart. Let not the foot of arrogance come upon me, nor the hand of the wicked drive me away. There the evildoers lie fallen. They are thrust down, unable to rise. Point number one, the way of wickedness. Now, these, especially these first four verses, if you notice, are some of the most densely packed, thick verses that we have on the nature of sin and the way that sin works. It begins there in verse 1. If you look at your text, the transgression speaks to the wicked deep in his heart. Now, we have to establish something pretty essential here at the outset of this sermon 
have to answer a question that will uh, flavor and impact the way we understand the rest of the psalm and how we apply it in our lives. And the question is this, who is the wicked? Who is he talking about here in this text? This is essential for us. And as a result of that definition, how we should think about understanding and applying Psalm 36. Well, the, the word here for the wicked that he uses in Psalm 36 is a word for the, the rebellious person, the evil person. In short, David is using the wicked here to talk about those who do not know the Lord. So those who are not friends of the Lord, but those who are enemies of the Lord. Those who do not know God in a believing, saving way. That is who he is designating as the wicked. And so if you're a Christian here this morning and you're reading these first four verses, you aren't necessarily meant to read verses one through four and say, yep, sounds like me. Sounds like me right there in the text. You're meant to see this. David is standing back as a representative of the believing community of faith, and he's looking at a great contrast between uh, the wickedness of the wicked and the gloriousness of God. And so in a sense, we should be able to stand with David and say, yeah, I see those same two things. We see the wickedness of the wicked, and we see the glories of God. And so we're meant to, to, to see that contrast along with him. At the same time, we, all of us, declare along with Scripture that none of us are righteous, no, not one. We know that we won't be completely free from our struggle with sin until we're with Jesus, that we're free from the penalty of sin now and even the power of sin now. We're not completely freed from the presence of sin now. And so we confess that reality as, as well. And secure as we are in Christ, we do see throughout Scripture, even for the believer, uh, repeated warnings to keep trusting in Jesus, keep clinging to Jesus, keep persevering in our love for the Lord. Indeed, if you look at verse 3 of Psalm 36, David at least has someone in mind who has ceased to act wisely and do good. Do you see that? So, so he is in, in somebody's mind when he's talking about the wicked. This person at one point in some sense was doing good and uh, striving in a way to, to act wisely. And they were doing some wise things and some good things at some point. And so perhaps this person was near to the community of faith. Perhaps this person was what you might, might say seeking to know more about this God uh, in whom David believed. Maybe this person was even making a proclamation of faith. Yeah, I believe that there's a God, and I, I believe in that. But, but really, the, the, their true allegiances prevailed, and we see everything that's true of them in verses 1 through 4, ultimately. All right, so where does that leave us, then, as we're reading these first four verses? Well, it leaves us understanding that these first four verses are, are most directly and appropriately a description of those who have never repented of their sins and trusted in Christ. While at the same time, I think rightly seeing elements in the text of the way that sin works that we are also very clearly aware. And we see the, the way that, that we too need to be vigilant and sober-minded about our own sin. Both of those realities ought to sober us and instruct us on the topic of sin. So I think there's something here for all of us. All right, so what do we learn here about sin then and the way that the, the, the enemy of God is described, the way the wicked is described, and the way that we, even as Christians, might look and, and see the way that sin works in our lives? I want to walk through the rest of these four verses, and I want to point out ten things that we learn about sin. All right, ten things that we see packed into these first four verses 
that we learn about sin. Look again at verse 1. Transgression speaks to the wicked deep in his heart. The first thing we learn is this. Sin is proactive. Sin is proactive. You see David conceiving of it there as speaking. It is intentional. Sin has a goal. Sin is attempting to do something, to gain ground, to claim territory. It is speaking to the wicked deep in his heart, tempting towards something. Sin is not neutral. It has an end game and is working toward that in everybody's life in this room. First thing we see is sin is proactive. Number two, the second thing I think we see there in that phrase as well is that sin is an issue of the heart. Sin is an issue of the heart. It is an affection level thing, meaning the things that we love. We all have something in our lives that we love, things that we strive. The reason that we commit sins is that deep down somewhere we love that thing. That's why we choose that thing. Sin does business in the marketplace of our loves. This is why sin so often feels so hard for us to overcome. You know, one of the most helpful, and when I say helpful, read challenging, convicting uh, Proverbs for me just annually as I uh, take stock of my own life is Proverbs ten nineteen. It says, where words are many, transgression is not lacking, but whoever restrains his lips is prudent. So where words are many, transgression, transgression is not lacking. You might say, the more you talk, the more you sin. I don't know if anybody feels that, but the more you talk, the more you sin. Where words are many, transgression is not lacking. But whoever restrains his lips is prudent. And so for me, as as I sin with my mouth and the things that I say, the the temptation is there's like, man, I've got to restrain my lips. I have to restrain my lips. Why is that so hard to restrain our lips? Well, the very next verse in Proverbs says this. Proverbs 10, verse 20. The tongue of the righteous is choice silver. The heart of the wicked is of little worth. So the very next verse says, this thing that I'm talking about, the lips, the tongue, the mouth, is contrasted in the very next verse with the heart. The reason that it's so difficult to restrain our words is that we're not trying to restrain our words. We're trying to restrain our hearts. The the reason that it's so difficult for you and whatever sin that that you battle is is that you're not trying to just restrain that thing. You're not trying to restrain the the, the, the thoughts that you think. You're trying to restrain your heart. You're not trying to restrain what you type on a keyboard or what you search for on the internet. You're trying to restrain your heart. That is where sin does its work. That is where the battle begins. Sin's desire is to get you to love anything other than Jesus. Sin is active. It's trying to claim territory, to gain ground, and it is doing its work in our hearts. All the little things that we do are outworkings of that, of the sin that is infecting our hearts. If you keep looking there in verse 1, there is no fear of God before his eyes. Now, when you see that fear of God, if you've studied the Old Testament at all, your, your mind may go to other places that talk about the fear of God, right? So maybe Proverbs chapter 1, verse 7, that, 
the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And, and if you've heard that concept taught before, then, then you're aware that, well, fear of God doesn't, doesn't mean that you're afraid of God. It means that you are reverential of God. It means that you have a, a reverence or a respect of God. In Proverbs 1, verse 7, that, that, that a, a reverence and a worship and an awe of God is the beginning of wisdom. But listen, that's not the Hebrew word that's used right here. The Hebrew word that is used right here is the word for dread. That the wicked is not afraid of God in the sense of having any sort of dread. There's no fear of God before his eyes. There is no healthy respect for God that recognizes that God will punish evil. So this person assumes that there aren't consequences to actions. There's, there's no accountability. There's no justice. Here's our third lesson that we see about sin. Sin wants to blindfold you to consequences. Sin wants to blindfold you to consequences. Sin will always lessen the consequences. Sin wants you to think of reality with God cut out of the picture. He's not going to do anything about this. That's why in Genesis 3, the lies that were whispered to Adam and Eve, has God really said, is God really going to do that? No, he's not. There aren't any consequences to this. That's the same lie that is whispered to all of us today. Look at verse 2. He flatters himself in his own eyes. The Hebrew word there is, is that he smooths over in his own eyes. Lesson number four about sin is that sin comes with self-deceit. Sin comes with self-deceit. It's not just that lies are being whispered to us, but that we are whispering lies to us. There, there's no, because there's no fear of God, verse one, he tells himself that sin is no big deal. This is pride working on the unrepentant. Keep going in verse 2, that his iniquity cannot be found out and hated. Number five, sin wants to be hidden. Sin wants to be hidden. We think that our sin will not be found out that, or that it escapes God's notice, and so we hide it. We hide it from, our other, uh, from, from, from others. We hide it from our, ourselves and lie to ourselves about the reality of it in our lives, and we think we hide it from God. We've all had that experience. That is what is being pictured here as well. He thinks that his iniquity cannot be found out and hated. Verse 3, the words of his mouth are trouble and deceit. Number 6, sin, the sin that infects us, is reflected in our actions, in our thoughts, in our deeds, in our speech, our speech reflects our inner state. That's why Jesus says in Matthew chapter 12, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. By your words, you will be justified, and by your words, you will be condemned. Matthew 12, verses 33 to 37. A seventh thing we see as we keep looking there in uh, verse 3, he has ceased to act wisely and do good. He has ceased to act wisely and do good. So number seven, sin is accomplished in omission as well as in commission. 
Sin is accomplished not just in the things that we do, but in the things that we avoid doing, the good that we hold back, the justice that we don't strive for. Sin distorts us and changes us so that we stop doing what is good. There's a spiritual hardness and a callousness that sin will create in our lives. Or it will just create the, the condemning guilt uh, that keeps us from doing good things. Well, I, I want to pray now. I want to turn to Scripture now. I want to share the gospel now. But man, I feel like such a hypocrite because of, of, of the way I've been living my life. Or the, those things. And so sin will cause us to, to go inward and to hide and to, 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 to cease from doing good things as well. That's another way that sin works in our lives. Verse 4, he plots trouble on his bed. Number eight, sin is premeditated and schemed. Sin is premeditated and schemed. And this image of lying down in his bed, when we lie down at night is, is often when our consciences are, are frequently pricked against the things that we need to confess of or to repent of or where our hearts and reflection upon the day are contrite. Not this person at the beginning of Psalm 36. When this person is lying in bed, it's to plot and scheme evil. You might even see Psalm 63. David says, I remember you on my bed and meditate on uh, you in the watches of the night. The bed is supposed to be, as we lay down a place, to thank God for his goodness and his mercies and to, to praise and to glorify him and to turn our eyes to him in thankfulness. Psalm 36, verse 4, he plots trouble on his bed. He plans for sin, both in his lying down and then in the next phrase, in his walking. He, he sets himself in a way that is not good. He is planning for sin. Friends, Romans chapter 13, verse 14 says this, Put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its desires making provision for the flesh to fulfill its desires is this, plotting sin in your bed. It's not just that sin is whispering in our hearts or that we are being overpowered by a foe or that we're slipping into sin, which, by the way, is our favorite way to talk about sin, isn't it? Ah, I slipped up. Ah, I messed up. Oh, I stumbled. Oh, I backslid. We always have this way of speaking of sin as if I'm, I'm not actually choosing that, but something's happening to me and I'm just always tripping over something. And you know, why'd somebody put that Lego there in the middle of the night that I just stepped on? We, we have this way of, of speaking uh, to lessen uh, the, 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 the view and the vision that the Bible gives us on sin. No, it's premeditated. It's planned in our hearts. We often think about it. Friends, it's helpful to speak of sin in accurate terms and, and to own it and to own the, the, those, those desires that he come up and, God, I, I chose to do that. I repent of that. Would you help me to, to, to keep my eyes on you? And there we see also the ninth thing. Sin is a constant commitment. Sin is a constant commitment for the wicked. It says he sets himself in this way. It means he's always about it. He's always doing it. And then finally, the very end there, he does not reject evil. Number 10, sin's goal is complete surrender. Sin's goal is complete victory. This person, by the end 
of these first four verses just gives up, just stops fighting, ceases to push back or to give any resistance. He doesn't reject evil, not opposed to it, but is friendly with sin. Doesn't even call it sin anymore. Friends, that is a great temptation. When the great American culture meets the biblical counsel, guess who wins in our country? It's the culture so often. And this person, by the end of verse 4, just doesn't even call evil evil anymore. So I just give up. That is the goal of sin and of transgression. Well, what are we to do with this? Uh, you're all thoroughly depressed <laughs> at this point. What do we do with this? Right? These are ten heavy truths about transgression. Listen, if you're here with us this morning and you're not a Christian, listen, David is trying to describe you. You might read that and say, listen, I, I, dis I object. That doesn't sound like me. Listen, David is trying to describe you, but not in a way of attacking, not, not in a way of denigration. It's not out of a sense of, of superiority that, that David says this or that I say that David is trying to describe you. Christians aren't Christians because they figured out how to not be like this. That's not what makes a Christian a Christian. A Christian isn't a Christian because they look at verses 1 through 4 and says, oh, I figured out a way for that to stop describing me. That is not what makes a Christian a Christian. If it was, then yeah, Christians could look down on other people and say, that doesn't describe me anymore. It describes you. That is not the good news of Christianity. That is not the story of the gospel. That is not what Jesus came to accomplish. In fact, David wrote Psalm 51 where he showed how many of these things were true in his own life. Rather, what makes us Christians is confessing that verses 1 through 4 is true of us and that there is nothing we could do about it. That's what makes a Christian a Christian, is reading Psalm, verses one, Psalm 36 verses 1 through 4 and saying, yep, that was me, and there was nothing I could do about it, but you know what happened? God sent one of whom these verses were not true. The only person in the history of all the world and all of creation of whom the Psalm 36 verses 1 through 4 were not true, and yet he stood in place. So, so the one of whom this was true, who actually, uh, for those of us who, who um, read Psalm 36 verses 1 through 4, we see that this is true of us and that we deserve God's just judgment because of it. But God says, okay, well, here's somebody of whom this isn't true, and he will take the punishment that all of your Psalm 36 verses 1 through 4 is true, and he will take that punishment and bear that on himself. He will take God's wrath for all people who this describes. That is what makes somebody a Christian. So if you're here this morning, I want you to know, as David does, Psalm 36 verses 1 through 4 describes you. This is what sin is trying to do in your lives. Now, it may look more like some of these, these 10 aspects at times and, and less at other times, but this is the way that Satan is trying to get his, his, uh, his works and his, his deeds and his attitudes into your life more and more and more. And the only way out is to say, I confess that's true, 
but I know one of whom it's not. And my faith is in him, that if I trust in him, his righteousness in all these areas is given to me. That's the gospel. If you are a Christian this morning, let this text warn and sober you. It is a great mercy of God to give us glimpses of wickedness, to let us see folly and danger that lies in that path. James chapter 4, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you do not have, and so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. James would look at a Christian and say this exact same thing is true. The reason that we fight and quarrel is because our passions are waging war inside of us. We rightly see a passage like this and are warned against the dangers of sin to turn and flee to Jesus. Well, the text continues here, kind of turns on a dime. Point number two, the love of the Lord. Look at verse five. Your steadfast love, O Lord, extends to the heavens your faithfulness to the clouds. Your righteousness is like the mountains of God. Your judgments are like the great deep. Man and beast you save, O Lord. How precious is your steadfast love, O God. The children of mankind take refuge in the shadow of your wings. They feast on the abundance of your house, and you give them drink from the river of your delights. For with you is the fountain of life. In your light do we see light." It's quite a different chord that is struck in verses 5 through 9, isn't it? In fact, if you would cover up verses 1 through 4 and just start with verse 5 and read 5 through 9, you would be shocked to find verses 1 through 4 in this psalm. The way that, that this psalm starts with this just thick, heavy meditation on sin and wickedness. And then we look at verses 5 through 9 and have this glorious, I mean, the language is calling our eyes up to the clouds and the mountains and the grandeurs of the beauties and glory of God. It's meant to look like that. David is doing that intentionally. That's part of the point. We are meant to see a glorious contrast between the wickedness of the wicked and the steadfast love of God. God's steadfast love, verse 5, if you look there, extends to the heavens, his faithfulness to the clouds. The word here for God's steadfast love in Hebrew is a, a word that combines both God's love and God's loyalty. It, it points to God's committed love, his enduring love, his persevering love, his faithful love. Indeed, when God revealed himself to Moses in Exodus chapter 34, verses 6 and 7, listen to how God describes himself. Revealing himself to Moses, and he says, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. It's the same word, steadfast love. The Lord, the Lord, Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. It's the same description that we see David use here in Psalm 36, verse 5. This is at the core of who God is. 
It's not just how humans look to and describe God, but it's how God describes himself, his steadfastness, his loyalty to his people, his committed love. It is never ending. It stretches to the heavens. It reaches beyond the clouds. This means that this is how God desires for you to view him. And any other conception that you have of God is inaccurate and inappropriate. Reading verses 1 through 4, I felt a little bit too real for me. I bet I've chased God away in my sin. God says, nope, steadfast love and faithfulness. Well, I, I fear that God will let me down like other authority figures have in, in my life and, and people who have abused their power and who have failed me. God says, nope, steadfast love and faithfulness. Well, I, I don't sense God's nearness in this season. It, it means that his love for me has waned. Nope, steadfast love and faithfulness. Friends, fight to see God in this way. If you conceive of him in any other way, it's because you're choosing to conceive of him in a way that he is not giving himself to be conceived by you. The way that we choose to think of him will flavor our experience of him. Let's conceive of him in terms of how he's clearly presented himself in scripture. Steadfast love and faithfulness beyond imagination. Well, he keeps going in verse 6. We have two more descriptors that are coupled together in the, the same way that his steadfast love and his faithfulness is coupled together. So too, his righteousness and judgments are coupled together. They're complementary terms. His righteousness is like the mountains of God. Massive, vast, immovable, impeccable. Spurgeon commenting on this verse I love this. He says, as winds and hurricanes shake not an alp. <laughs> kind of pictures almost like an alp, like a tree branch that you, sh- you could shake. And Spurgeon says, as, as winds and hurricanes shake not an alp, so the righteousness of God is never in any degree affected by circumstances. He is always just. God has never done and will do, never do anything wrong to his creation. He is good And flowing from that are uh, are his good judgments, his good judgments, his good wisdom, his perfect justice. It is like the deep, meaning it is mysterious and it is beyond searching out by us, but it is immense in and unfathomable in its vast perfection. Indeed, his goodness and perfect wisdom is extended, it says, on man and beast alike, meaning on all of his creation. Uh, the, the word save there and the ESV in verse 6, it can be misleading since we use that word to, to think of regeneration and conversion. What it means here is that God delivers and preserves both man and beast. On all of his creation, God cares for and exercises oversight of and sovereignty over and gives goodness to all of his creation is the idea there. Over all of his creation, he is perfectly righteous with perfect judgments. God is good, and he does what is good. Paul tells us the same thing in Romans 8 that we read earlier in our service. 
that we know for us as we, we consider all the things that happened to us in life and all the things that are swirling around in, in 2020, we know that all things work together for good according to his good pleasure. His judgments are perfect. And that nothing can separate us from his love. Well, then in verses 7 through 9, he, he meditates further on God's steadfast love. He says there in verse 7, if you look at your texts, that God provides uh, a refuge. He is like a, a, a mother bird sheltering and protecting and providing safety for her babies. God cares for us. Though we have an enemy who is too strong for us, we rest secure under the shelter of our mighty God. Though we face illnesses and diseases and viruses and old age, we have no fear because we are nestled under the wing of our mighty God. Though you face unfair treatment, acts of injustice, wrongful terminations, concerns about our culture and our country, difficulties in your family, you have a refuge under the protection of a mighty God who does what is good always. Pray that we would know the, the excellency of God's shelter for us and the safety and the security that we have. And not only in verse 8, not only do, do God's children rest in his refuge, but they feast on abundance in verse 8. Lavish, overflowing abundance. You know, I fear that when we think of God's shelter, maybe we, we go to a wrong image in our minds. Maybe you go to a kind of like a bunker mentality, that, that God is protecting us as bombs are exploding and arrows are flying or whatever it is, and we're just kind of hunkered down and God's kind of protecting us, and, and he's doing that. That's a fine image as far as it goes, but that's not the image that we have here. God shelters us. He is our refuge, but then he gives us abundance. We are hiding under the shadow of his wing is not just a bunker mentality. It's actually a protective barrier under which you partake in a banquet. Maybe I'm out of my league with this illustration, but given our geographical context, it would be like in a time of national crisis, fleeing to your neighbor's just janky backyard shed bunker that he built or getting on Marine One and flying to Camp David. Those two images. In one, you're fearing for your life eating baked beans out of a can. In the other, I assume, you are completely protected without a care or a worry in the world, probably dining on some pretty good food. That, that God's shelter is not just bunker mentality, it is abundance. He protects us and he lavishes on us. What is good? God's steadfast love for us provides impenetrable safety and abundance of delights. Both feasting and drinking from the river of his delights. For with him, verse 9, with him is the fountain of life. It's such a great image because if he is the fountain, the streams can never be cut off. He's the fountain. He's the source. He's where it all comes from. No attacking army can cut that off. It, it is always flowing, always coming for his river of delights. He is the fountain. He is the source, the spring, the origination of blessings. 
and he is good, giving them freely and abundantly. Also in verse 9, in his light do we see light. We don't use a flashlight to see the sun. No, it's the sun that illumines everything else. Our own brilliance and our own wisdom doesn't lead us to understand God or to have spiritual life in any way. No, it's, it's his light that leads us to know the way. His truth, his life. You know, it's interesting here. I, I quoted James chapter 4 earlier. But it's interesting how, how similar James chapter 1 is to Psalm 36. Almost makes me wonder if James read Psalm 36 in his quiet time that morning or whatever before he sat down to write what we know is the book of James. Listen to this. After an extended meditation on the way that sin works in our lives, right? Sound familiar? Psalm 36 verses 1 through 4. And James chapter 1, after an extended meditation of the way that sin works in our lives, James writes this. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. We have a God who gives every good and perfect thing. Father of lights, and his light do we see light. And he doesn't change. There's no variation or shifting shadow. Psalm 36 would put it this way. His steadfast love and his faithfulness is like the mountains. It's like it, it stretches to the heavens. It goes beyond the clouds. His righteousness and his judgments are perfect. And he makes people to feast on his abundance because he is the fountain of life. And in his light do we see light. David in Psalm 36 is teasing out the character, character of God that was made manifest for us in Jesus Christ. Think about verses 8 and 9 here. They feast on the abundance of your house. You know what Jesus says in John chapter 6? I am the bread of life. The one who comes to me will never hunger. Psalm chapter 36. You give them drink from the river of your delights. You know what Jesus says in John chapter 7? If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as Scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Psalm 36, in your light do we see light. You know what Jesus said in John chapter 8? I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. John chapter 6, John chapter 7, John chapter 8. We see David teasing out here and pointing us to yearn for one who would come, who would, who would show us God's goodness and his steadfast love and his faithfulness and his good judgments perfectly. And Jesus says, that's me. Whoever eats of me, will never be hungry again. Whoever drinks of the, the uh, flowing water, the living water that I have, will never thirst again. I am the light. And whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, will have the light of life. The steadfast love of God has been shown clearly to us in Christ his Son. And so if you read this Psalm 36, verses 5 through 9, you say, man, that's great. 
We see the, 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 the way of the Lord, the, the love of the Lord, his steadfast love, but how do we see that? How do we know that's real? God says, I have shown that to you in Jesus. It doesn't mean you're going to get all the goodies that you want in this life. It doesn't mean that you're going to experience all these things that like some will tell you in this life in real physical, tangible ways. Now, he does bless all of us. He gives us life. He gives us light. He illumines truth to us but the river of his delights are eternal. The light that he provides is eternal. How do we know we experience the delicacies mentioned in Psalm 36? It's in Jesus. I want to conclude with these last three verses and a kind of an illustration to help us see why this is so important in our lives. Look at the last three verses. What David does, all right, you've seen the two points, the love of the Lord, the way of the wicked. All right, verses 1 through 4, the way of the wicked. Verses 5 through 9, the love of the Lord. And then in the last three verses, he takes those two things and prays for him. Look at your text. Oh, continue your steadfast love in those who know you and your righteousness to the upright of heart. That's the love of the Lord he's praying for in the people of God. Verse 11, let not the foot of arrogance come upon me, nor the hand of the wicked drive me away. There the evildoers lie fallen. They are thrust down, unable to rise. So in those last two verses, or last three verses, David circles back and prays about both of these points, the love of the Lord and the way of the wicked. He prays for a continuance of God's steadfast love and righteousness. And he prays that the way of the wicked would not creep into his life. May we pray for those same two things. And here's your illustration. I want you to imagine, and I've seen this picture this way, maybe this illustration will be familiar to you, but, but imagine a, a horizontal line that represents your life before Christ. All right, so you have this horizontal line that, that represents your life before Christ, and, and as you become a Christian, there's a point where that line diverges in two directions. So there's a kind of a, an angle that, that right when you become a Christian starts to go up this way, and there's an angle of that line when you become a Christian that starts to slant down this way. And if you would imagine that illustration, that line that is going upward is an increasing knowledge of and awareness of the holiness of God, the character of God, the perf perfections of God. And that line that is slanting downward this way is an increasing knowledge of our own humanity, our own sinfulness, our own neediness before the Lord. And so you see this diagram that diverges and goes in these two directions. This has been uh, called the, the cross chart. I've seen it in a number of different books and a number of different ministries use this. It's a helpful way for us to think about this because as we are growing, uh, as we grow as Christians and as we continue on in the Christian life, well, we should be increasing in our knowledge of those two things. We should be increasing in our knowledge of the holiness and, and character of God, and we should be increasing in the knowledge of our own sin and our need, neediness. So here's the paradox of the Christian life, where maybe we feel like we're growing in the grace and the knowledge of the things that we just talked about, but you say, but I don't feel any better. <laughs> I, I, I look at this, and sure, I, I know I have an increasing knowledge of the goodness and glory and holiness of God, and I have an increasing knowledge of my own sinfulness. Now what? Well, the key is that as that angle continues to get bigger, you draw a cross. 
So as that angle is small at the very beginning, the cross is small. And as that angle gets bigger and bigger and bigger, the cross continues to grow and to grow and to grow in your life. That is why this concept is so vital for your spiritual life. That as we have, if we have a small view of God's holiness and a small view of our own sin, we may be saved, but the cross looks kind of small. As we grow in our knowledge of God's holiness and our knowledge of our own sin, the cross is meant to look bigger and bigger and bigger. It's, we're meant to see Jesus more and more in the light of who he is and why he came and what he has accomplished in our lives. Friend, don't forget that the cross fills that gap. And the wider that that gap becomes, the more we learn about God's perfections and the more we are aware of our own neediness, the bigger that Jesus becomes. The more we look to him and say, Christ, thank you for saving a sinner like me. Thank you in your perfect righteousness for giving that to me and infusing us with your righteousness. The second reason that that's important is that we have a tendency to take a smaller view of sin, a smaller view of God's holiness, and just realize, friends, when you do that, you make the cross smaller. So if we, we look at this and, and, and we think about this concept and we think that, okay, okay, I, 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 God really isn't that holy. What, what we see about his standards laid out in Scripture, it, it's, it's not really. We downplay his perfections and that line comes down and the cross gets smaller. Or we look at that bottom line and we say, ah, I'm not really that sinful. I'm not really that needy. I can kind of do things on my own, try to be a good person that line starts to come up and the cross gets smaller. It shrinks the cross. We fail to, use, to, view, to view Jesus accurately and Jesus becomes small in our lives. Friends, Psalm 36 desires to put before us a glorious contrast that gives us a big, robust, healthy view of who we are and a big, robust healthy view of who God is. Biblical view of God and his holiness and perfection and a biblical view of ourselves and our sin and our neediness. That is what is necessary for spiritual renewal. That is what is essential for the Christian religion. That is what makes Jesus big. Let us pray for a growing knowledge and awareness of that and living in light of it. Pray with me.